This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Greetings, and welcome to another Dialogue podcast. This time we're pleased to present BYU professor Brandon Plue, editor-in-chief of the award-winning book Mapping Mormonism, an Atlas of Latter-day Saint History. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Board of Directors of Dialogue Foundation, publishers of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. If you enjoy these podcasts, we hope you will consider supporting us by subscribing to the journal and, if you're able, by making a tax-deductible contribution to Dialogue Foundation. You can subscribe or contribute online by going to dialoguejournal.com. This presentation was given to the Orange County section of the Miller Eccles Study Group on March 14, 2014. At this point, we'll shift over to the session recording. So now I'd like to introduce our speaker. Dr. Brandon Plue is Assistant Professor of Geography at Brigham Young University. After getting a bachelor's degree in cartography and mathematics from Brigham Young University, he earned his master's and PhD degrees from the State University of New York at Buffalo. A cartographer, a cartographer at heart, his career is focused on historical geographic information systems and historical cartography. And he and his wife, Jamie, have five children. This book, as I said, is, is just a, a, a wonderful book. I have read much of it, but the thing is, you get, on one, you get on one page of this book and you can spend hours just kind of looking at the details that it's involved. And it's not just maps, it's charts, it's graphical depictions, if you have any ancestors that ever were LDS back in Nauvoo or, or Kirtland or those areas, a lot of mine would leave these histories and they'd say, well, I lived in Camp Creek or I lived for a while in Little Pigeon. And I'm thinking, where, is, where are all these things? Well, he's tracked all of these little places where there are branches of the church. We think of Nauvoo and the, these central areas, but there were lots of branches of the church in the early days all around. And, and your ancestors likely were found in some of them as well. And, and these are depicted. The introduction to his book was written by Richard Bushman, and I'll just kind of quote from one paragraph. Mapping Mormonism offers a spatial rendition of the founding story, the well-known and essential historical spatial basis of, of Latter-day Saint belief, up through the trek to the Great Basin. What is remarkable is how much else is treated cartographically. The growth in genealogical activities is one, along with the welfare and humanitarian aid, church education, church administration, and church architecture. The uh, atlas depicts typical chapels, the various standard building plans over the 20th century down to the present. The birthplaces of many general authorities are mapped. By compressing vast amounts of data in a map or a chart, the atlas enables us to grasp a great deal of information at a glance. And it certainly does that. So without further ado, I'll turn the time over to Brandon Clue. Thank you, Morris. Uh, before I start, I'd actually like to put in a plug for those next two uh, talks. Um, Matthew Martinich was a, was a great resource uh, as we were doing the Atlas. Uh, many of you, uh, some of you may be familiar with his blog. 
that he has uh, LDS church growth where he, I don't know where, what his sources are. He's got secret sources for everything about the church <laughs> and knows what's going on. And, uh, and Sex and World Peace, one of the authors is in our, in the geography department. And uh, he has an, it, it, that, that story, uh, that title was picked to sell books. So, <laughs> um, <It's old> <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what I, what I, I uh, want to talk a little bit about tonight. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I just want to briefly talk about kind of the, where the, this uh, book came from. There was an atlas published in the mid-90s, actually the, during the time I was at graduate school in our department, called the Historical Atlas of Mormonism. Uh, it was about that big, and uh, was really a kind of a landmark work for its day. But uh, as books go, it, it went out of print, and then the publisher was bought by another publisher, by another publisher, by another publisher, to the point where nobody knew who owned the rights to the book. Um, so the BYU Studies came to came to me and said, I mean, what, let, "Let's do a new edition of that uh, of that book." And uh, I wasn't going to pass that up because um, I would uh, jump at any chance to make a bunch of maps. So uh, I don't know if I'd do it again if I had the chance. It was five years. Uh, of about 60 hour a week uh, weeks so it was um, it was a major undertaking I, I didn't know that I would it would be so much work for me we had a lot of uh, we had a lot of authors we had the, the other these other three editors the three editors of the of the first edition uh, came back uh, all of whom retired in the middle of the project so I uh, yeah so I was I was left to, to do a lot of it I had a lot of uh, help with students we, we were able to get uh, some great funding to, uh, to publish it and to, to hire some students to help out. But I, I do have some copies here to, these are precious to me, so you know, these, this is all I have left. But uh, if somebody, if you want to pass them around for people to look at, well, yeah. those of you who don't have your own uh, copy of it, you're welcome to, to take them and look around. What I want to focus uh, on tonight is, I'm going to tell some stories like anything better, just some things that uh, that we learned along the way about church history and uh, and some things that where looking at things visually really made a huge difference in understanding uh, the church better. It, and and so that's what I'm going to focus on. Is I'm just going to kind of show you some some examples of some of the maps and diagrams and such that I'm most proud of that I was when I finished, was kind of most surprised by the results and said, wow, that, I, I, we really learned something from that. Yeah, there, there are in here, in these, in these 500 or so maps and diagrams and such, there are some, some of the kind of standard things, you know, where was Kirtland and things like that, uh, that you would expect to find in a, in a book like this. But we did really try and reach out and look at a lot of, of topics that, that we don't see very much, and that's what I want to focus on uh, on here. So, the first the first kind of group of, of maps I want to talk about of, of, of things we want to talk about is are things where kind of the facts are known. There's no big secret here, but looking at it visually really kind of helps people. It, that people have come back to me and said, "Wow, I never really appreciated that the way that I do now." So by looking at it, so this uh, this image here is of Independence, Missouri, during the early 1830s. And if you go there now, you know, it's a big city, and you really don't get a, a feel for what it was like, that it was a very small town at the time. Very small frontier town, cut out of the woods, 
Uh, you can see the prairie off in the distance here, but this was cut in the woods. And that gives you an appreciation for the kind of impact that the Mormons had in that town. And it gives you an appreciation for why there was so much reaction to them. That they were not some small group of people coming into a large uh, population. They were very quickly dominating the population there. And, and that, that feel, you get that feel of kind of what a small place it was by looking at that. The map on the right uh, is talking about, uh, is showing the paths of early explorers uh, when the pioneers first came into Utah and, and sent out exploring parties to try and find places where they might settle. And I had not thought that this was that interesting of a map. I, it, we did that. It was in the first edition, and we kind of updated it and got some better data. And I thought, okay, well, you know, it, it's a, it, there's some facts there, and, and we should probably show that's a very visual story. Until I started talking to uh, people, and we were, we, we, uh, I talked about this map actually in the, um, the television program. What is it? The Glenn Rawson's program. Uh, History of the Saints. And he was amazed, he said, and, and several people have come to me, church historians have come to me and said, I never realized how much the, the direct impact of those explorers on the settlements that came later. That so-and-so discovered Severe Valley for the saints, and that's why the severe, why that's why it was settled. Or so-and-so discovered San Pete Valley or, or Cache Valley, discovered from a white Mormon perspective those valleys and that that's what led to these these, uh, these subsequent settlements was the direct impact of these explorers going out and the reports that they brought back. Uh, a good example of that, uh, Parley Pratt in 1849 led a major exploring party south, uh, eventually made it down south as far as Hurricane and St. George, came back with largely negative reports of Hurricane and St. George, but... Uh, <laughs> But that's, that was the reason why the next year settlers were in Parowan, uh, was because of his, uh, of his report. At the same time, uh, er, later, parties were sent out during the 1850s, uh, during the Utah War, at the time that, that the, the army was coming. Uh, Brigham Young sent two parties out into the West Desert to look for possible places where they could hide out, move the entire church out into the West Desert, the parties came back and said, don't even try. There's, there's nothing out there. It's not worth the trouble to try and move anybody out there. They did start one settlement, which eventually became kind of the area around Meadow Valley in, uh, and, and, and uh, Panaka in, in Nevada, but largely came back with a negative report saying we couldn't possibly survive out, out there in that in the desert. Later, a party went out to explore uh, the Uinta Basin and came back and said, it's not worth the trouble. Very soon after that, they signed a treaty and moved all the Utes out there. So there's probably a connection there. Uh, the one on the bottom here was a, was a set of maps where we tracked the election results in Utah uh, from statehood uh, until the present day. And the funny thing about this one is that people look at this and they get very different impressions from this. When we did this, the authors and I were most impressed by, I mean, the thing that, that we kind of were flabbergasted by is just how overwhelmingly Republican uh, Utah has become. Most people in Utah who look at the thing, they're flabbergasted by the fact that it was ever Democratic. <laughs> and, and they have a hard time, they have like no memory of the fact that we had a, a Democratic governor at one point. We're like, yeah, it's only recently that, that Utah has become as extreme as it is. 
Utah used to, in terms of presidents, Utah used to follow the national trends generally and tended to pick the winner. And and uh, it's only recently that that uh, it's become as extreme as it has. So so that's one of the great things about visualization, about uh, making these visual stories, is that I'm not dictating here what the story is. We're trying to present the data in a clear way. Uh, and then let you figure out what the what the stories are. And there are there are a lot of stories in here that are meant to be told, and, and that uh, that you can you can grasp out of this uh, process. And so that that was a really interesting one. Just by the sheer volume of the data, we've really uh, been able to see some really interesting patterns. Again, these these uh, these kind of this group of things where there's not really any new revelations, but presenting it in a new way. This the top two here are from a series. That on the development of the of the headquarters campus in, in Salt Lake and uh, the various buildings, and I've been amazed, especially by the 1950 one, the number of people that come up and say, "Oh, I remember that building. I'd forgotten all about that building that that ever existed." And another interesting part of that is the number of people who served missions during the during the 60s and 70s. Who uh, we were when we were trying to do our research for this, it was hard to find exact dates, and I went to a lot of uh, of missionaries from that time, my, my father included, and said, so where was the mission home when you went on your mission? And he's like, I don't remember. I was there for three days. You know, <laughs> I, I, I remember going around a corner, and, you know, uh, so the, the, the mission home, when it was here, first it was in this set of houses right behind the Beehive House that used to be owned by uh, Brigham Young's descendants. And uh, they kind of joined all these houses together. It was there until the surge of missionaries in, in the early 60s when they bought this hotel. And, uh, and that's where my dad went to uh, mission home and eventually outgrew that and moved into a, an old school that was here, all of which buildings are gone now. But uh, but that was, that's, that's one of the reasons that's been interesting is the number of people who just said, oh, yeah, I, I remember being in that building, and I, I fondly remember that building, and why did they ever tear that down? And so... Uh, so those are some are, are, are some interesting things. Another another example of things where the stories are known, but uh, putting them all together is, is this diagram bomb. This is a timeline of 1846. What's impressive about this is just the number of different movements that were happening at the time. The church was just totally in flux at that time. You had you had people. This the, this brown line here is Brigham Young's company crossing Iowa. And, and leaving Iowa. At the same time, you had the, the Brooklyn Saints in New York getting on the ship and, and sailing around the Horn of Africa. At the same time, you had this party of saints from Mississippi who end up in Pueblo for the winter. And so you have all these different <coughs> movements going on at the same time. And it's really interesting, and, and only really in a timeline like this, can you see that all these things are happening simultaneously. And this is one of the reasons why this is so interesting to me, I got into this, and, and I've made a career out of, out of mapping history, not because I love history, but because I hate history. Uh, no offense, but, I, but history <coughs> confuses me. Uh, I just, went, when I would be in school, and it was just all these dates and names, and it was all just, you know, it wasn't making sense. And by, by visualizing it, that's what's helped me to make sense of history is by being able to actually see these kind of paths of all these people and how they interacted with one another. That, for example, you have here, as an example, 
Uh, here, this red line is, sorry the resolution's all messed up here, but you can't read anything. But this red line is the Mississippi Saints, who end up in Pueblo, Colorado, uh, expecting to head up to what is now Laramie and, and run into the, the Pioneers, because Brigham Young says he's coming across that, that year, and they're going to meet up and, and end up in, in the Great Basin somewhere. They get to Pueblo, and they hear rumors that, that Brigham Young's given up, and, and sure enough, here he is back on the, at the Missouri River and has, has decided not to move on that year. So they hole up in, in Pueblo, and they don't know, have any idea where the church is. They don't have any idea where Brigham Young is, so they send a, a, an exploring party out. That exploring party happens to run into the Mormon battalion coming the other direction, and uh, who tells them, "Oh yeah, he's they're up in in at Council Bluffs, and you know this is where you're gonna if you need to find them, this is where you can find them." And at the same time, he tells them, "Well, we've got this camp in Pueblo uh, that we've set up, and you know, we think we're going to be pretty well set for the winter." There we'll 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 just stay hang out there for the winter, whereupon the Mormon battalion starts to starts to send their sick parties to back to Pueblo because that's kind of the nearest station. So all those interactions are things we don't commonly think about. We think about the Mormon battalion story as a completely different story from the pioneers crossing Iowa story, and and so we don't commonly think of those things as all all interacting with each other. So that's that's one of the things that this really. That really helps. Uh, here's another example. This was a map showing the travels of Joseph Smith, so during his lifetime. And even though we, we, we sometimes hear these stories about his travel this place, his travel this place, most of us don't appreciate the fact that he was so well-traveled, that he did go out and, and, uh, and move around quite a bit. I mean, he served himself served uh, two or three missions short missions and not a lot of knocking on doors, but, you know, he, he did go out. He went to Canada twice, uh, went to Detroit three times. Uh, I didn't know that. I, I, knew, I knew about the Can at least one of the Canada trips, but I, didn't, I never knew before we started working on this that he had gone to, to Michigan three times. Um, so that's one of those examples where you say, well, I just didn't realize that he actually did travel that much uh, during his, his lifetime. Uh, this example, this is uh, looking at, at, at some statistics about the distribution of the church. And again, these are no secrets. Uh, all of the maps, this one and the, the one down there excluded, but all of this data is, is from public sources. You know, this church almanacs they put out every year until this year. I think they stopped doing it, which is why the, your guests next month are kind of filling that void. But you know, these, every year they're publishing in this, this data about uh, how many members there are. Going back historically, we did have to find some, some data in the archives. But the data is there. But being able to put it all, this is just one of my favorite things in the entire book because there is so much information packed into this small uh, graph here. So what this is showing, this, this graph is showing, is the relative distribution of the members of the church uh, so it all adds up to 100%. It's not total numbers. It's percentage of the church in different regions. So the bottom, that dark blue there, is Utah, the percentage of the church that lives in Utah. And then you have the Intermountain West, Arizona and, and Idaho and, and Nevada. Uh, the West Coast, here where we are, is this bar here. The rest of the United States, and then you have South America, Middle America, Asia, Europe. Europe's the green. Africa's the yellow. Uh, the Pacific is the 
purple in Canada is the blue. And there's just a lot of stories going on in this map. Uh, among them uh, is you can see the surge in California starting in the 1920s. So that's this bar here. So starting in the, in the early 1920s and mid-1920s, uh, this bar starts to rapidly increase uh, as, as you get the surge of perhaps your parents moving to California. And uh, until really up until about the, s the early 70s, when California starts to kind of level off. And, the, and that, that rapid migration from Utah to California largely either ceases or starts to be balanced by return migration back to, to uh, Utah. But, you know, they, they they, Utah declining in, in importance overall, although in recent years it has leveled off. This, the, the rapid surge here in Latin America uh, starting in the 1970s, actually earlier in the 1960s a little bit, that Latin America just starts growing extremely rapidly. The fact that Canada has remained about 2% of the church throughout that entire time, which is really, that, that's just, I find that interesting. There, there's a bar there that seems to be very uninteresting, that very top blue bar, but, but the fact that Canada has been pretty much growing at the same rate as the church the entire, the entire, the last hundred years. So, uh, so that's just, that's just amazing. Taking the same data, we took the same data and, and did this. Uh, this is what we call a cartogram. Uh, in a cartogram, you, uh, the size of things is not their true size. It's depending on some variable. So in this case, the size of, the, uh, of each country and state is relative to the number of members that it has. And there's two maps in the atlas. One is in 1990 and the other one's in 2010. So you can compare over the course of 20 years, how things have, have changed. But in the atlas and in other things, this graph uh, is also showing kind of the relative distribution of the members of the church. But I think this map, as, as this map has been, has been kind of advertised, uh, it was featured in a BOU Magazine article uh, during last summer, and they put it on their Facebook page and got a lot of discussion about this particular map, even though a lot of the comments were... were Snide remarks about Utah being an island. That seemed to be the most common remark. It's really hard to cram Utah into that space right there, so I had to do that. But, but I think more than anything else, this helps you appreciate the distribution of the church. As I've shown that to people, I never realized that the church was so heavy, heavily Americas. We hear a lot about Africa, we hear a lot about Asia, and yet... Basically, there's as many members in Utah as there is in the entire Eastern Hemisphere. Uh, and in the Eastern Hemisphere, there's about as many members in the Philippines as the entire rest of the Eastern Hemisphere. And, uh, and this map helps you kind of get an appreciation of that, of just how it's not as evenly distributed as we sometimes like to think it is. It is very heavily in, uh, in the Western Hemisphere and, and especially in Utah. I'm going to show you another, another depiction of the exact same data in a minute here uh, that will... They will also show that. This is this one is, is was also interesting. There's been a lot of, of uh, studies done where people have tried to predict what the future growth of the church is going to be. This blue line is the one that got a lot of press that uh, Rodney Stark published many uh, during the during the 80s originally, and then in the 90s. And you know, ever 
all the Mormons said, wow, look how great we are. And all the non-Mormons said, oh, that's scary. And, um, and, uh, and then he published again in the ni- early 1990s and said, wow, the, the Mormons are outpacing my, my wildest imaginations. Uh, when in fact it was a, uh, the, a lot of the, the jump was actually due to a clerical uh, error that was fixed in the 19, about 1989. That, that's this little, this little jump right there that you can see. So there's been a lot of predictions. You see that, that a lot of them are very similar. The thick red line was one that uh, a colleague of mine in the, in the geography department and I worked on. Where we kind of developed a new technique based on geography. So it looked at each country individually and kind of the, how the growth tends to happen in each, in each country and, and kind of came up with something that, as you can see, is roughly in line with the others, uh, which shows that the growth is kind of mostly linear. Uh, we've kind of, uh, the, the time of that kind of exponential growth curve, uh, unless something significant changes, which something significant had always changed uh, and, and drastically changed that future. But, uh, but so that was, that was an interesting one to look at at kind of all these different models that people have come up with. The next set that I, that I want to bre- uh, talk about here are stories that maybe we don't hear enough of. And, and we decided early on in this that our strategy was to tell the story from a faithful perspective, but not to hold any punches. And we were really, all of us were inspired by, by Joseph Smith Rustone Rolling, just the fact that, he, that that perspective that he had, the Bushman had with that book, uh, I'm going to tell the story as accurately a history, but I'm not going to I'm not going to apologize for the fact that I'm a I'm a faithful practicing Latter Day Saint, and that's my perspective, and that's kind of the, the point that the, the, that's kind of the perspective we wanted to take with this. So we we want to be willing to tell stories that maybe other people might not uh, might not want us to tell or, or whatever. We didn't go looking for the most salacious things we could tell, but. It's hard to tell the full history of the church without talking about plural marriage. So we said, well, we've got to talk about it. Let's try to, try to, discuss, try to show it in as factual and as, as enlightening a way as we can. Uh, we, get, we, we enlisted uh, Ben Benyon, who some of you may know. He's a, he was a geographer uh, up at Humboldt State. And he's kind of spent his retirement. His mission is to... Is to figure out exactly how many people were, were involved in plural marriage. And this is using a lot of the data he had collected at, at the time. And I think he's continued to collect data since then. So in this, in this map here, um, each, each town, and it's not complete, it's just the ones that he had sampled at the time, the red shows the percentage of the population that was involved in plural marriage in 1870. Uh, the blue shows the, the number that were involved in that were in monogamous households. So this includes not just fathers, it also includes wives and children and, and the entire family. But it shows there that, that, number one, it tended to average about a quarter of the population. So the stories that are told that it was only 2% of the population, 3% of the population are, are, are not even close. And yet it also shows that it, was, that it varied drastically. So in the more urban areas, it tended to be a little bit lower. In some of these areas, especially in southern Utah, it tended to be quite a bit higher. Uh, St. George was about, was about half of the families in 1870 were involved in, in plural marriage. And kind of St. George at the time really prided itself on its piety. There's kind of a, 
when Brigham Young would come down there, they would kind of say, look at us. We, we're kind of the, the shining example of what you keep preaching. And that was, uh, Ben thinks that that was kind of an out, this was kind of an outgrowth of that. Brandon, was there a reason he used 1870 instead of 1880? He had data for both, but he had more complete data for 1870. So it was just a data thing. He happened to know more about 1870. Because extens- extensiveness might have been even greater in 1880. Yeah. It might, yeah I, I think he knew that, but he was trying to collect as much data for 1870 as he could yeah. and then move on to 1880. And, and that was a challenge. That, that, that he, he has a lot of challenges with that collecting that data, so largely using census data. He wanted to do temple records, and he probably could do temple records, but it would take a lot longer. Temple records are all in the one little room in the family history library, and it takes, it's rather, and they're not always clear about whether it was a monogamous or a plural marriage, so it would take a lot more work to, to collect that data. This one on the left tells a story, it's kind of a seldom known story, uh, about Mexico. I don't know, just by raise of hands, are any of you familiar with the Third Convention? You know about the Third Convention? Armin does. Yeah. This is a story that we hardly ever hear about because on its surface it may seem as a negative story in the history of the church, but I think it's a very powerful story, and, and so I'll tell you just a bit about it. So the, the Mexican mission had started in, the, in 1879 with, with limited success, was able to set up a few branches kind of out in the... They got kicked out of Mexico City and were able to come out into uh, the rural area surrounding Mexico City and, and set up a few branches and kind of had still went in fits and starts for several years. Um, but around the turn of the century was really kind of was gaining some success. And then in 1912 came the Mexican Revolution, uh, and many of you know about the exile of the saints from from the Mexican colonies. Uh, the church had to kind of leave. And most of these, because of the laws of Mexico, most of the missionaries who were coming down here were coming from the colonies. And so when they, when they got kicked out of the colonies, they essentially shut down the mission. And the saints here, who were you know, fairly new to the church, were kind of left to their own devices. And uh, you know, sometimes that doesn't work out so well. In this case, it actually worked out quite well. Uh, the saints really took it upon themselves to, we've got to have our own leaders, we've got to really kind of keep things running here on our own. And uh, so they were quite successful for the next uh, 10 years of just kind of running the church on their own without any help from Salt Lake. And then the Mexican mission was reopened, and a uh, mission president came back and said, okay, I'm here now to tell you all what to do. Uh, and now you don't have to try and do things on your own. I'm here to, to, to tell you what to do. And, and for the next few years, there was a bit of friction there, that, this, that the Mexican saints were saying, you know what, we kind of know what we're doing. <laughs> And the mission president says, no, the way this works is Salt Lake tells me what to do, I tell you what to do. And that was kind of the, the attitude that the, that the mission presidents had. And so there got to be some friction, and eventually the saints down here had a couple of conventions where they said, okay, they actually wrote petitions to Salt Lake and said, we would like to have a, a Mexican native mission president uh, we would like to be able to set up our own buildings where we think we ought to. We'd like to set up our own branches where we think we ought to, da 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 And the, the, the petitions got sent back to Salt Lake. Salt Lake says, well, we don't really work by petition. That's not the way the church works. And kind of just sent them back. Eventually, they, they, they had a third convention, where the, the movement gets its name, in 1936. Uh, and, the, and the gist of this is, we're leaving. We're, we're going to just go on our own, and we're going to run the church on our own here. And so what you have is essentially a split in the church in Mexico. 
and the numbers aren't quite clear, but it's, it's about a third of the church follows the third convention, about two-thirds stays uh, with, the, uh, with the church. Uh, they never really leave. They don't form their own church. They still claim loyalty to the president of the church. They still <coughs> use the same name. Sometimes they're actually both are holding meetings in the same building, but they're essentially operating a, a church in exile, if you will, uh, on their own. For about 10 years, they do this. And they're writing their own manuals. They are uh, building their own buildings. They are sending out their own missionaries. I mean, they are really running the church. And, it's, and it, again, it's not that, they, that they're organizing a new church. They're just saying, this is how we think the church ought to be run down here in Mexico. And, and, they, and they do this. And there was a lot of uh, arguments for years up in Salt Lake about what are we going to do with these people? And, and some of, the, the, some of the, uh, the leaders of the church are saying, we need to get down there, we just need to excommunicate them all, and say, that's it, You're, you've, you've all apostatized, and that's it. And, and they don't, can't quite decide what to do. Finally, George Albert Smith is made the president of the church, and he said, and they come to him and they say, we got this problem in Mexico. What do you want to do about this? And, and we think you ought to, we, we ought to take a hard line on them and just you know, clean house down there. And George Albert Smith says, they're saints as much as anybody else. And he says, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to love them back into the church. And he goes down. This is the only international trip that George Albert Smith makes. He's you know, fairly sickly. He, doesn't, he isn't able to do much traveling. So this is the only major trip that he takes. He comes down there in 1946, holds a big meeting, says, I'm... I'm you're all going to get amnesty. I'm not. If you accept to come back into the church, uh, we're going to to uh, accept you all back, and we will. You know, we're going to work together. And if you all work together, we'll make you a stake, and you'll be able to become a stake. And when you become a stake, that's when you get to kind of run your own show. That's when you get to have native leaders and and everything. And he says that's that's what you want to do. You don't want to run your own mission. That's small beans. You want to have your own stake. That's, that's the real goal here. And the leader of the third convention gets up in the middle of the meeting and just stands up and says, hey, this is what we ought to do. And uh, almost all of them, not quite all of them, but almost all of them come back into the, come back into the church and kind of iron things out. And, and you know, a few years later, the, they, they become a stake. So some people think of this story as being kind of cool because... There's this mass apostasy from the church. Some people think the story is terrible because there's this mass apostasy, this apostasy from the church. I think the story is impressive because of the resolution of it, that, that they came back. And also, the effect of the, what, what's not appreciated is the effect that this had on the church. Uh, prior to this time, the church viewed those international missions as largely colonies. That we go out from Salt Lake, and we we're kind of colonizing the world. And the only way to really get the blessings of the church is to come back to Utah. And this experience, I think, teaches the church that we need to think of those people. These people are not going to move to Utah. They're never going to move to Utah. They're not like the Europeans that, are, that keep coming across. These people want to stay where they are. And they want to build the church where they are. And I, and I believe that this had a major influence on the church's attitude towards those international missions. And it's very soon after this, that David O. McKay very publicly kind of takes, makes the announcement that, hey, stay where you are. Stop coming to Utah. Build stakes where you're at. And let's build the church where you're at. And, and, I, and I believe that this story had a profound influence on that, on that movement to, uh, to kind of build the church internationally instead of leaving them as, as these colonies that, that uh, would eventually come in. 
And in academic circles, how is this referred to? Is there, I, I haven't been exposed to this. Oh, it's called, the, the group was called, called themselves the Third Convention. Third Convention. Yeah, they call, they call it the Third Convention. So that's the, tip, that's the name you'll typically see. It's hard to find. There's not a lot of mention of it in, in church history. So. Is there a manuscript of George Albert Smith's talk or what he said exactly? There are, there are a lot of reminiscences. I don't think somebody actually has the script of his talk, but there's, there's, a, there's a man in, in Provo uh, who, who runs a museum actually in Provo for the history of the church in Mexico. He runs another one across the street from the Mexico City Temple. And he's documented a lot of this. He, he was very helpful in this. Uh, he had photographs. He had uh, all, these, all these stories about uh, what people remembered from those meetings. There's the, there's the history book uh, that uh, was written by the BYU professor. What's his name? Well, there's, Lamont, there's Tullis's book. What? Tullis. Lamont Tullis. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Wrote that book in Mexico. Yeah. yeah and he mentions it. He does talk about it, although the, the, the Mexicans who I've talked to said that he doesn't treat it quite as well as they'd like. <laughs> here's, another, here's another one that, that, uh, that, that we did that, again, kind of puts things in perspective a lot better. We hear a lot about the growth of the church, and it's growing very rapidly in this area. It's not growing very rapidly in this area. What's going on? And we wanted to get some grounding for that, some perspective on that. And... We actually had a former student of ours from the geography department who was uh, in graduate school in, the Pro- in Prague who had done uh, his master's thesis on this subject. And so we got him to come in and, and help us with this. So what we did is this map compares. This is the distribution of, of the LDS church. You saw that cartogram. This is the exact same data, but uh, now the size of these circles represents the, the population or the, the membership of the church. This is the Jehovah Witnesses, and this is the Seventh-day Adventists. And we picked those two churches. We had to make it very clear. We didn't pick those two churches because they were related at all. They're not related at all. But they're, but they're three churches that were started during the 1800s in America. Uh, all three are very missionary-oriented. So uh, from, I guess you could say from a sociological point of view, there's some similarities in the way they, in the way they act. All very centralized churches, so they all, have, they all keep statistics on membership although they keep their statistics in very different ways. We had to put a, a few caveats in, into, the, into the article on this. Please do not compare these numbers directly with one another because the way that they count members and the way that we count members is very different. But the interesting thing about these maps is just looking at the differences in the distribution of the three churches. So three churches with, with similar total membership uh, all in the in the you know ten million range, but very different distributions. So, the Seventh Day Adventists have taken on much more of a traditional Christian missionary attitude of going into developing nations and and building up there. The number one country, even though the Seventh Day Adventists are headquartered in Washington D.C., India has more members than any other country. They have about a million and a half uh, Seventh Day Adventists in India. And huge in, in Eastern Africa, huge in, in Brazil, almost dominating in the Caribbean. Uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons why our church has had such difficulty in, in the Caribbean islands, other than the Dominican Republic, is because they go in there and, it's, and the Seventh-day Adventists just kind of run the show uh, of anybody who's not Catholic. And so, very, very different distribution. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses, anybody who's, who's served a mission or anything in Europe knows that Jehovah Witnesses are, are kind of beating us have been beating us for many years, 
yeah, in Europe, quite a bit stronger in Europe and, and a little bit stronger in, in Africa. And we are much stronger in the United States, obviously. Each of those churches has about a million members in the United States, and we have five, uh, and, and generally in, in Latin America. So it's very interesting to see, not in terms of competition, but just to, just to kind of put this in perspective, that as big a deal as we make about the growth of the church in Africa right now, we're way behind. We, you know, we've got a long ways to go in, in Africa, and, uh, and, and this, this really kind of shows that. So. India is kind of a shocker too, you know. You don't hear much about India as far as being a fruitful field for conversions. Yeah. But apparently, it's a fr- fruitful field for Seventh-day Adventists. Well, what happened there is, you know, we had missionaries in in India in 1850. You know, we tried to open a mission in India, and we were there for about three or four years, and we gave up. We, they they were there, and they said, "Eh, this isn't going to work." Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists set up shop uh, in the 18 70s, if I remember right, never left. They kind of pushed through it, and they stuck with it, and they just continued to grow. So, you know, we don't think that much about the fact that we have a million members in Brazil, but yeah, that idea of having a million members in India, just kind of, wow, that seems impossible. So that's, that's the flip side of this coin, not just that we're, that we're behind in those, but it also shows you, and, and I think your speakers next week, they talk about this a lot, and so they'll probably, or next month, we'll talk about this, that it shows potential. But it shows, hey, Christianity is growing in these in these areas, and so there's potential for for missionary work uh, in those areas. So, and and all three churches, especially the, the Jehovah Witnesses, are, are facing similar kinds of pressures. You know, they're having a hard time keeping up with the secularization in Europe, and and just the number of people who are just kind of leaving religion altogether in Europe. That's that's a, a major issue for them as as well as as us. So. Another couple maps that, that uh, are, are stories that I think are not told as much as they ought to be. This one here, Morris was talking about this one at, at, at dinner, this, this diagram. This is one where I just said, I want to do a diagram like this. And, and I thought, what can I do this with? We were trying to figure out, we wanted to show Brigham Young's travels. And the problem was we had done a map, and there's a map in the atlas that shows the routes that he traveled. But it doesn't really give you a good appreciation because he kept traveling the same routes over and over and over again. So you don't really get a good idea from a map as to what his travels were like. So what we did here is we actually diagrammed out his travels, every single travel that he took after he came to Utah. Because once he, you know, he, went, he came here in 1847, went back, that's where he's his named the president of the church, came back and then he never left again. So after that point, uh, his travels. So let me explain the diagram. It, it does take some explaining. Uh, these are these are years, so 1848, 49, and so on, down to 1877 when he died. And then, sorry, I drew the map this way, and then we had to turn it this way to put it in the book. But uh, so these these are this is on the map. This is going north. So you have Ogden and Logan and all the way up to Fort Lemhi in in Idaho. And then these are trips south. So we got Provo and Manti and and Parowan, St. George, and so on. One trip he took down to the Colorado River near Las Vegas. And so this is showing, over the years, every single trip that he took. And so it shows you, number one, his, his, his kind of field is expanding over time. He, he's, he's going further and further afield as the church uh, spreads. But the frequency is also changing. So uh, early on, he's actually one of those explorers. He, he's the one who goes... Sent, takes a party up and says, this is where we're going to put Ogden. 
he doesn't call it that, but this is where we're going to put Ogden. And he tends to party side is this is where you're going to build Provo. And so he is early on, he's part of that. He wants he wants to be the explorer. He wants to get out and be part of the, the party. In fact, he takes one trip down here, he goes out as far as Perea, and I don't know if a lot of you know where Perea is, but it was this little town, really kind of two houses, out in the middle of, uh, of what is now the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, and so east of Kanab, and it was out in the middle of nowhere. And he got out there and he said, what are you doing out here? But that was really out on the, on the very, very edge of Mormon settlement at the time. And he, so he really wanted to be out there uh, among, and, and kind of seeing the, those outlying areas. So we talk here about, in, in here about the, the kinds of trips that he took and the, and, the, and the number of trips that he took. This is during kind of the Utah War period where uh, he has a bout of illness for, for several years. He's under house arrest from time to time. He has death threats on his life. He's kind of hiding out in his house. So he travels very little during that period. But, and then here, this is one we know a lot about. This is when he's wintering every year in St. George. That's these, these thick red bars. What we don't hear as much about is basically he was, going, he was going south for the winter, but then every summer he would go up to Logan or to, or to uh, the Bear Lake Valley. And he traveled, he really traveled quite a bit. Uh, after this point right here, this is when the railroads finished. So he starts making very frequent trips. He visits almost every state conference um, in Ogden and, and Provo when, once the railroad's built. And uh, so he's, he's just constantly traveling. You know, he, the last travel he takes is he organizes the, he organizes the Box Elder Stake in uh, Tremont uh, a week before he died. So he, uh, this really gives you an appreciation of, of one of the things he did. And, and that leads into that 1877 that those last trips that he takes leads into this map, uh, which is one, one of the stories that I think we really don't appreciate, and that is uh, the major reorganization of the priesthood that he does in 1877. He goes down to, to dedicate the St. George Temple um, and, and said that he re- received a revelation and he needed to kind of reorganize the, the priesthood and get it on a, on a kind of everybody's doing the same thing. Because until that time... There was a lot of variability in, in how the church was being run. There were some stakes, the, the brown, the tan areas here were, were the different stakes. Some of them were very well organized, some of them weren't. There were stakes that had a high council, but no presidency. There were a couple areas, San Pete Valley and, and Cache Valley and, and the Box Elder area, that functioned like stakes, but didn't have a presidency, didn't have a high council. They just had an apostle who lived there and just kind of ran the area. And so there were wards that had bishops. There were wards that had branch presidents. There were branches that had bishops and branch presidents. And there's just a lot of variability in how the church was being run. There, there were bishops that covered a whole, all, the ward, all the wards and branches in the whole area, and they just kind of traveled from one to the other and act as bishop. And so they, after this, this uh, the dedication of St. George Temple, he says, okay, we're going to all do this the exact same way. And that's where we get the pattern that we're familiar with today. Wards have bishops, branches have branch presidents, stakes have, have to be set up this way, and, and uh, spends the rest of his life, the next couple months, traveling throughout this area, reorganizing stakes. Uh, this, is, this map, which is hard to, hard to read here, but it shows 
they double the number of wards. They, they just go and start organizing everything in a much more clear way, which is what we're used to now. But until that time, it's very ad hoc. This is really a fundamental change that, that makes a, uh, has a huge impact on the way the church is run today. And very few people know about this, know about the, this, uh, this big thing in 1877. So we wanted to kind of emphasize these stories that, that we don't hear so much about. So some of these required some brand new research. What I've been talking about so far, the data is mostly available. It's out there, just we were trying to present it in a new way. Some of these required us to do this completely differently. So this map, what we wanted to do was, I wanted to kind of show what life was like for a missionary in the 1830s. And kind of their travels and what they did. And so, as an example, we pulled up, this is Wilford Woodruff's mission to Kentucky and Tennessee. His first mission that he takes. He's a, he's a young man. He comes into the mission as a priest. He's made an elder while he's there. Uh, and then the only other elder leaves and goes back to, to Kirtland. And he's left to kind of run this whole area on his own. Uh, of a, he's got a few branches. And so this is showing uh, his travels. And, and we use Wilfred Woodruff because he's such a meticulous journal writer that the data is there. It was just a matter of me going through his journal page by page and figuring out where is this house. It says he goes to brother so-and-so's house. Where's that house? And so we were able to identify some branches here and, and show his travels. And, and, and what, happened, what, what this shows and what this illustrates is something that was kind of known before but doesn't really have a really good idea is that the early missionaries of the church often took this, this kind of cue from, especially from Methodist uh, ministers, of this, this idea of being a circuit rider. And so he kind of ran this mission. He was kind of the only missionary in this area. And he was responsible for, let's see, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven branches. And he just goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Constantly, he's constantly traveling up and down the same road on a horse, wears a horse out, gets another one, you know, and keeps going back and forth between these branches, trying to keep things stable. Uh, and try and, and and trying to spread. These are houses that he goes out to and preaches where he may or may not have had any success. This is a case where he comes down and he's actually able to convert a bunch of people and eventually organize a branch uh, in this area. But this is what missionary work was like, was this, these guys being kind of a shepherd over these branches that they taught. He estimates that he traveled, if I remember right, something like 3,000 miles during this year. For, for those in the back that can't see, the, the width of the lines is how often... He would travel those routes. So the thick lines is like 20 times. It means he travel that route 20 yeah. times. And that's in about a year and a half, if I remember right. So, uh, and this is a fair, apparently pretty pretty common, this kind of missionary mission at the time. So that was, uh, this took about uh, about five months to, to do, uh, trying to identify all these places that he, uh, that he mentions. And uh, it was a very important branch. Uh, very important, uh, for example, this academy branch, he, he, he gets a protege there, uh, a young man who had just gotten baptized just before he, he showed up, who kind of, he kind of takes under his wing uh, by the name of Abraham O. Smoot, who uh, eventually becomes one of the, the major uh, players in Utah Valley and, you know, uh, and, and eventually Brigham University. Yeah, so he's, he's able to kind of teach many people. So that's one where, where you know, nobody's seen this kind of thing before. This, this data didn't really exist in this form before. Uh, this is another one that's really kind of floored people uh, from time to time. This is showing the, the branches of the church during the Nauvoo period. 
So all those green dots on there are are the branches of the church. So you've got Nauvoo, but you also have uh, we've we've counted about 1,200 branches that existed at some point during Joseph Smith's lifetime. Uh, that includes branches in, in Great Britain, which there are quite a few of them there. But just the, the widespread distribution of the church. So here's where we were just we were just looking was these branches down here. But just how widespread it was, and also the how they. It also shows a little bit about how missionaries function. So you notice there's a lot of branches right through here. Well, that was the typical path that that missionaries took when they were going back east. They would go through Chicago. They would go to, to Detroit. They would take a boat across the Lake Erie, get to New York, get to Buffalo, and then go across that way. And so as they went, they would try and preach and, and do what they could. And eventually you get this string of branches formed uh, along that corridor. So this really shows kind of how widespread this is. The other thing that this leads to, which is uh, which we don't have a, a full appreciation of yet, we're still trying to figure this out, is this big question of how much of the church went when Joseph Smith died, how much of the church went this way, how much of the church went this way. We don't have a good grasp of that right now. But what we have been able to, to determine is that this geography was very important to that story. Uh, in Nauvoo, People were more familiar with the new teachings that, that Joseph Smith was teaching. And the estimates are that probably about 75 to 80% of the people in Nauvoo went west. But of all these scattered branches, a lot of those new teachings were rumors. They knew very little about all those things. Uh, sometimes they liked the idea, sometimes they didn't like the idea, but they were only getting kind of bits and pieces of all these new teachings that, that uh, are, are part of church doctrine now. Um, and so when Joseph Smith died, uh, probably about half, only maybe half of those, of all those scattered branches eventually uh, made it to, to Utah. And, and a half followed James Strang or, or eventually followed uh, Joseph Smith III and, and so, or, or just evaporated from the church. So that geography is very important for understanding what happened to, those, to the people after Joseph Smith died. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk about all of this. I'm going to talk about this down here, because you'll, you'll, you'll be interested in this, being here in California. So this is showing the... This is on, from a page called The, the Outmigration. And this is showing the, the trend starting in the 1920s, in 19, actually after World War I, of this mass migration from Utah to the rest of the United States. The person that did this, that worked with me on this, was, was Wes Johnson, who's been doing a lot of research over the years, uh, especially looking at prominent Latter-day Saints uh, in, in other parts and kind of their life stories, their, their, their stories. And he focuses a lot on Chicago and New York and, and Washington, D.C., and, and you know, people like Ezra Taft Benson and, and you know, Marriott and Romney and those people. And uh, when I showed him this map, he, he kind of went, whoa. I never saw what I've been doing as data before. And, and this shows a couple things. One, it shows that California, the migration from Utah to California, vastly outnumbers anything that was going back to New York or Washington, D.C. or, or Chicago. That, that just, this, the, ma the mass migration to California during this time. You can see you know, from there to here to here to here to here uh, by 1940, just the explosion. The colors, by the way, are, are comparing the migration from Utah to the migration from other surrounding states like Nevada and such. And so what this is showing, the blue here, what that's showing is that, is that 
Utahns were migrating to, Cal to California much faster than from Idaho and Colorado and Arizona. So this, there was a, there was a, a, a Utah influence on that. Uh, whereas places like Chicago, um, yeah, there were, there were Utahns moving back to Chicago, but lots of people were moving back to Chicago. And so it's not really out of, that, all that, out of the ordinary that, that Mormons were moving back to Chicago because lots of people were moving there because there were jobs and there was education and there were things there. <laughs> more than there was, say, in Nevada. Current data on California, is it shrinking? The latest I've seen is that it's... California has had about 700,000 members for like 20 years. Very stable. It's very stable. Yeah, very stable. It, yeah. Roughly, roughly, conversion is kind of keeping pace with out-migration, with, my, with that migration back to Utah. So. And, and what does the orange large circles on the right, this 60 and... 50, this here? Yeah. This is showing it's about the same. So the yellow indicates that it's about the same. So... You know, by the time you have in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there's growth in California, but lots of people are moving to California. The Utah migration to California is not that abnormal. It's the fact that it happened so early. This is, this is all happening before the Great Depression. Yeah. That's the interesting thing here is that the Mormon migration to, to, to Southern California and to San Francisco starts well before the, the, you know, the, the whole Great Depression migration that we hear so much about. So. Um, From an anecdotal point of view, it seems to me that a lot of the membership increase in California in recent decade or so has been either Hispanic or Asian. Yeah, which you know, let's let's I'm going to skip this one. Let's talk about that. Okay, so here's one that you might you all might appreciate a bit. I love doing this map. So what we did here is we plotted out every every ward, branch, and stake in in the Southland here from 1930 until, well, I did the map in 2007, so, and I didn't want to do it after that, so I stopped. What's what was interesting about this from a geographic perspective, so for me was, again, the same kind of story. Yes, we know that the church has grown in these areas. We know that the church has declined in these areas. Is that interesting? Is, that, is, there, a, is there a Mormon story there, or is that just the way things are for people in general? And so what you, what you can see here it, it, is that the growth of the church in Los Angeles largely follows the, the general suburbanization trend. You know, here the church is, you know, just kind of these scattered, these scattered branch, branches and wards. These are the first two states. The circles here are stakes, and the dots are, are branches. Uh, so very much concentrated in what is now downtown Los Angeles. Here you have this kind of First major ring of suburbs in the 50s, so places like uh, uh, Inglewood, not, not reaching down into Orange County, but Long Beach and, and Covina is kind of on the edge. Pasadena becomes a major center of the church. So you can see that that, that ring of suburbs is, is really a, a, a big deal there. And, and that's when I have family that moved to Los Angeles was, was they're all living in Inglewood. And, I'm, and you, know, you drive through Inglewood now, you know, I had family that were living here. That, that doesn't seem make any sense. But at the time, that was where they were living. There's the this purple dot here is one lonely Spanish branch in, in East Los Angeles. So by 1980, you can see again this, 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 it's, it's different suburbs. Now that now the major growth of the church is in places like Covina and Anaheim in the Valley, um, Riverside, San Bernardino. Is, those are all the areas where the rapid growth is, and you're noticing more diversity in here. The orange. Are, are Asian and Polynesian branches. Purple are, are Spanish wards and branches. And the blue are singles wards, singles and college wards. 
And so this is roughly what it looks like today. And what you're seeing here is not so much that areas are, are declining so much as just it's migration. People are moving out further and further into the suburbs. And you probably know the stories, the anecdotes of, of this a lot better than I do. You know, so you've got places like, say, the Valley, where you know, a, a, an English-speaking stake is converted overnight into a Spanish-speaking stake. You know, and now we've got five Spanish stakes in, in, in Los Angeles. And so what's happening there is you know, the, the, the interior or the older areas, uh, the church hasn't, it, 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 it's declined somewhat, but what it's really done is diversified. And just the other thing that impressed me about that is the sheer number of singles wards, the explosion of singles wards. So, uh, yeah, so this, is, this would be a, a one that you would all be very interested in. Well, let me, let me uh, finish up here by talking about uh, kind of a spinoff of this that has happened recently. One of the things that we discovered, that I discovered as I was doing this, was, was there's a lot of uncertainty in this. As we are gathering this data, there's a lot of things we don't know. They just aren't known, and, and, uh, and a lot of people that wonder about them. And so we've started to build uh, a couple things to start working on. I shouldn't lean on that. Uh, to start working on collaboration. How can we collaborate? How can scholars collaborate uh, on trying to gather this detailed knowledge? Uh, rather than kind of the big picture story, this actual detailed data, uh, it turns out there's a lot of people working on this. And so these are a couple projects to, to start to work on that. This is one called... Uh, Mormon places that I've been working on. This is a web-based uh, mapping system. And, and think of it as being kind of like a combination, a cross between Google Maps and a wiki, and Wikipedia. Uh, what it lets you do, and it's still in development, but what it lets you do is it lets people come in and share information about these places that were important to LDS history. So here we have uh, the red dots here are Mormon settlements. The blue dots are are congregations, the green dots are cemeteries, and people can actually come in and contribute to this. So they can say, hey, I know something about this place. Uh, what we found over and over again was that there's this knowledge kind of thinly spread across the whole church. We're so, you know, we don't know much, church historians know very little about this place. But somebody has a journal somewhere that happens to have four pages of branch records in the journal uh, that the church doesn't even know exists. You know, and so there's a lot of wealth of information that somebody has that, as a researcher, I don't have access to. And so by help, have, uh, enabling collaboration, enabling people to actually get together and say, hey, I know something about this settlement, uh, we're hoping that that really kind of helps us to build a much broader uh, base. The other uh, thing that's just started is uh, we formed a group called the Early Saints Research Group. On uh, website here, and and this is a group of, of researchers. We've, what I found over the years, over and over again, I get invited in these meetings, and they say we want to build this database. And I said, well, did you know that so and so is already building that database? And and so there's a lot of overlapping efforts going on uh, these days in trying to build these these very detailed databases of, of information. The kind of the holy grail one is this database of every single member of the church in the early days of the church, during Joseph Smith's lifetime, uh, primarily. We don't have that. We don't know how many members of the church there were when Joseph Smith died. We have estimates. We don't know exactly. And so uh, there's a lot of efforts in trying to, to do this, a lot of overlapping effort. And so finally I said, okay, stop inviting me to these meetings. We need to get, get together. And so we had a meeting uh, a, few years, uh, a few months ago during the Roots Tech conference and got a number of people together. And they were all amazed at how many other people were in the room. 
I did not know that there were that these people were doing the same thing I'm doing. So we're hoping we're just starting out. We're hoping that this starts to build uh, some collaborative efforts in uh, in trying to gather this kind of very detailed information, this data, so that we can do more of the work that uh, we started to do with this. So I will close with that. So yeah. questions? Thank you. Questions. Thank you for asking questions during the talk, by the way. I, I, like, I like that. So. Any other questions? Well, I've got one. Tell me the three maps or charts that you'd most like to have, but you can't because you can't get the information. We had, when we started the project, we kind of built a wish list. That this is what we want to have in the atlas. And uh, we, we found some people that, that we thought had the right connections. And they were surprised that, that they couldn't get what they wanted. One of them was, a lot of them had to do with, with data about membership. So one of them was, was something about demographics. So getting a feel for, obviously the church doesn't collect data on things like race. But getting a, trying to get a feel of things like age and marital status and those kinds of things. You know, how many, how many you know, young, young single adults are there and where are they distributed and things like that. And we had a person who's, who's actually done research on that for the church, and he said, well, can I get this data to publish? And they said, no. So we, that, was one that, that was one that we'd really like to get, is some idea of, of those kinds of demographics. Certainly something on that I'd love to see would be something on kind of the real size of the church, you know, the active members of the church, and the distribution of that and, and uh, activity rates. The, the guest you're going to have next month, Matthew Martinich, has done a lot of work trying to gather from little bits and pieces from missionaries and such, some idea of what those activity rates are like, but it's very difficult to get. There are something like four or five countries that gather data on, on uh, in their census, so you get self-reported members versus the number of members the church has, and that gives you some idea. We, we thought about using that data, and then we said, well, four countries doesn't really make an interesting map. And so um, we ended up not using that. But that would be a very, I think, a very interesting map to see would be. Because we know that it varies considerably. There is a definite geographic story to activity rates across the church. Well, more so, than four countries do the census data with religion, don't they? I'd have to ask, I'd have to ask Tim Heaton. But he, I, I think there's only been that many published. Right? I think he was only published. I mean, some of them are hard to get the data or something. It, 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 he, he's had a difficult time. To the point where he just said, "Guys, I can't, I can't do it. I can't, I can't contribute that uh, enough to make something interesting." So, so that was another one that we'd, we'd really like to have. We started one. We started looking into one on trying to map out all the the agricultural land that the church owns, and we couldn't get that data. Uh, looking back on it, I thought, I don't know if I, if I, I'm dying for that map. So this map here, which I didn't talk much about, this is showing the change in welfare in church-owned land in, in Utah Valley. I did that map not so much because this, this was a map in reaction to not being able to get that data because in Utah County it's public information. So I went through the county government and got all this data about the, the shift in, in welfare lands. And it's kind of a poor substitute for what I really wanted, which is to show the huge ranches that the church owns and such in different places. Isn't that data held by the church itself so as far as activity in regions and countries? And oh yeah, they have all that. And, yeah. and do you request that data? Is that uh, the church uh, 
reluctancy to share with you is the yes. you Yeah. Yeah, we had we had some challenges trying to get data directly from the church, and which which goes to show that, that when you're doing church history research, the more it's kind of uh, paradoxical that the more recent it is, the harder it is to do the research, uh, because the more you're relying on church-held data to 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 uh, to get it, and and uh, they don't hand out lots of data. Yeah, when we start doing things like the church educational system and and buildings and things like that. It was about kind of finding the right person in church headquarters that would tell us something uh, that we could that we could use. So, and and in, in some cases, we found very great people. I mean, the, the head of the church architectural division was very helpful. You know, talked to me for a long time about how standardized building plans have changed over the years and such. And so, we were able to to make something of that because somebody was very helpful. So. I don't know if that answers your question, Morris, but there are a few that yeah. the, there are a few that are still on the wish list that uh, I'd like to look at. <laughs> any other questions? Have you thought about doing any work in England and the early history of the missionaries that went there and the saints that joined? There are a couple maps that just show the general distribution of branches in those early days. Uh, we have we have we mapped out every branch in from up until the 1840s, up in the mid 1840s. And this kind of leads to, I guess, a, a follow-up to, to, to what Morris was saying, is that one of the complaints we got back was that people looked at maps like this, and they said, well, you don't label all those, and you don't tell me where all those are. I want to, and we had a, there's a map like on the facing page, it's of Britain, uh, at, the, at the same time period. And they said, well, I want to know, I want to lo- know about every one of those branches. I said, well, yeah, but I couldn't add 50 more pages to the atlas, you know, to, to do a detailed map of every one of those. And uh, as Morris said, we are working on a, uh, a slight uh, revised edition, mostly just updating some of the recent data. And, and I'm, I'm going to ask them for about, oh, eight or ten more pages to try to do some of that, to try to say, to zoom in on a couple of the regions, just have a map showing with some more of the labeling to show here's, here's where those branches were. The interesting thing about Britain, if you compare it to this map at the same scale, the British branches were very densely packed. I mean, there was lots of branches in small, very small neighborhoods in Britain during the 1840s, as opposed to here, where you know the Philadelphia branch had 300 members in it and it pulled from a fairly large area, it was a large branch from a large area, and whereas in Britain there would have probably been 10 branches of 30 members each. In that in that same kind of metropolitan area, so it it is a very interesting story that ought to be told. And I wish I had the pages to do it. Any other questions? Was there information available the state of Missouri for the future and land owners that the church may be buying? Because because land ownership information is typically held at the county level, um, we did gather some of that. So I do actually have some data on on the land the church owns. For example, you know, in Adam on Diamond, they own a, something like 10,000 acres there uh, surrounding Panamon, and most of which is just leased out to a local farmer. But um, couldn't get a map out of it. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't quite get a story out of it to put into the atlas. But we did have some of that data. But because it's at the county level, if you want to do it on a statewide, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work to, to get that done. So we just had it for some isolated places where we knew the church owned a lot of land. Yeah, just a, a quick question in the in the in the 
populations that you know, the specialized population, like the current in the 2007 mm -hmm. map, whether it was uh, Hispanic or, or Polynesian, is there any indication whether that is an influx from a specific area or whether they're act, whether it's actually the church itself growing in those areas? In other words, is this due to immigration or is it due to actual growth of the church? And yeah, that's a really good question. That's a, I, I don't I don't have that. In some, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know, and I don't know LA well enough to, to be able to really be authoritative on that on that question. But it is that is an interesting question, especially with the Spanish speaking population. I think in Los Angeles, the Spanish speaking population in Los Angeles, that would be a really interesting thing to look at. Is what to what degree is that migration? What degree is it local conversion? You know, I, I do know my son. My son is serving right now in in, La, in the Long Beach mission, I'm trying very hard not to go over to Long Beach this week. And, <laughs> You know, and, and, and you know they're being quite successful. I, I was very impressed, and I, I, you, I don't know if you all have, have, have really uh, appreciated this, but but we noticed during the surge in missionaries with the with the uh, drop of the age to eighteen, it's been a lot. Of, we had we've had a lot of missionaries called to California, I, and I was like, I thought they'd kind of given up on California, and and it turns out that a lot of these missions, you know, and we had what three new missions in the in the L.A. area, so. Uh, reform. So there's, there's definitely seems to be something happening here. There seems to be some resurgence of uh, of conversions here. So, yeah, my sense is that from what I can observe, that a lot of it is a conversion of Hispanics, for example, who are living here already. They they may have started out in Mexico, but they weren't necessarily Mormons in Mexico. Yeah. Now there are some that were, but a lot of the people I see are new converts here. My my parents are serving a mission right now in Arcadia, and and they're they keep telling telling me that when they go to baptisms, it's about two thirds Latin American or two thirds Spanish speaking and one third Chinese. So <laughs> that's a rough estimate of who, but that, and that's who they the baptisms they're attending. But that's so, and some of that's just Arcadia, but you know, yeah. that, that mission. But. Thank you. I don't know if this will give you a perspective or not, but I got back in August from El Salvador on a mission, and then I moved to a young single adult ward here, and the young single adult ward said they had 16 baptisms last year, which is really, really good. Mm -hmm. I've come from where it's going really fast, and I was amazed to hear that. And I know in L.A., they've just changed over four elders to Farsi-speaking, so they're growing um, in the... Farsi's language as well in the Middle East. Well, you know, in the, in the early church, a lot of the first missionaries, I know this because my, I have Scandinavian heritage, were the Scandinavians were, that went to the missions in there were actually American. I mean, there were Scandinavians who immigrated to America and joined the church in America and then were sent back to do missionary work. So perhaps... Were these the, were these the, Nor we'll, the Norwegian perhaps, yeah, yeah. converts? Yeah. Perhaps we'll see that same uh, pattern with some of the Middle Eastern. In regard to what she said, we serve at Cal State Fullerton Institute and there are an amazing amount of college-age kids coming into the church. They're the highest baptizing wards in the Anaheim Mission. And which is a, which is both a blessing and a challenge and at the same time. So, quality kids. Yeah. Boy. Long Beach Institute had they do like a lunch and a, like a class. They had forty non LDS students there. 
which is crazy coming from just a mission. I think that's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's really good crazy, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, good problem to have. Yeah, and, and I've heard the same things, for example, in Europe that, that a large percentage of the people coming into the church are, are young single adults. And as I said, it's, it's a blessing and, and it's also a challenge on, on how, to, how to handle that. So. Okay, well, let's again thank our, our This was very educational for me. I know it was for you as well. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.